Hello and welcome. Legally Brief presents the Child Athlete Abuse Podcast. I'm your host, Judy Saunders. I'm a lawyer, mother, and survivor. I work with competitive athletes and their families who are confronting abusive coaches. This podcast is for parents and athletes who are fed up, dealing with fear, and searching for answers. On today's episode, we're going to discuss the policy that's used by the U.S. Center for Safe Sport and national governing bodies regarding abuse survivors remaining anonymous. We're going to talk and you'll have some takeaways about where this policy comes from of being anonymous. We'll talk about is it effective and can parents really trust that they can anonymously report a coach? and then have their child continue to train in the sports facility unnoticed. We're going to talk about where this policy of being anonymous, what it's rooted in. Is it the belief that parents and athletes can report this abuse and that someone, a higher authority in the sporting community, will stop the abuse? I'll give you a reminder as to why it's important for survivors and their parents to report abuse to local law enforcement and not just stopping with a national governing body or the Center for Safe Sport. You'll understand, as I'm sure many do already, that hard choices have to be made, but that it is important to speak out if you want to move forward. While I sincerely hope you enjoy listening to this podcast, remember the contents of any show is never a substitute for contacting and speaking directly with a licensed attorney who knows and understands your unique circumstances. Past episodes of the podcast can be found on my website, jsaunderslawfirm.com. And also when you go over to the website, be sure to take a look around for additional information, answers that speak directly to parents and athletes. You also have an opportunity while on the website to sign up and subscribe to the newsletter. When you're ready to speak directly to an attorney, call the office for a confidential conversation. The number is 212-709-8100. And if you love what you've heard on the podcast, don't forget to hit the subscribe button and also leave a rating and review. Thank you for your time. And I hope you enjoy the show. So getting into this subject, let's start by giving you a story. It's an anonymous post detailing abuse that I've spoken about before. But I thought that it was so textured and the athlete who is a member of USA Cycling, what she wrote about, she talked not only about the abuse, but then she also gave us some insight into her personal experience after she filed the complaint with the United States Center for Safe Sport. And for purposes of this show, I'll just refer to it as the center, but that's what I'm referring to. So the athlete that I'm referring to, and I mentioned, I gave her the name before as Roxy, and I'll use it again in this. She described how she was manipulated, how she was sexually assaulted by her coach. 
She went through the process of reporting that. So she filed a report. So that would be step one. You file a report online at the United States Center for Safe Sport. And there's also a tracking and there's also an option of an athlete if they want to file a complaint with their sports national governing body. And in this case, it would be USA Cycling. Roxy filed with the center. After filing with the center, she received a response and she talks about going through that process. And that's what we're going to focus on today. And throughout this episode, I'll share with you some insight and some tidbits into what Roxy's experience with and what her cautionary tale was, so to speak, for other athletes going through this. So the United States Center for Safe Sport, for those that don't know, maybe they're new to a sport, maybe they're younger parents just enrolling their kids, or they're, you've never had to deal with this issue, and now you've learned of abuse and you're wondering what to do next. The center was created in 2017 by the United States Olympic Committee. It's a separate, it's an independent organization, and their mission is to protect athletes, protect their safety. The center is an act of Congress. If you go to the Ted Stevens Act, you will see reference to the center there. And many correlate the creation of the center to have happened or to be a result of, so to speak, after the gymnastic scandal involving Larry Nasser. The purpose of the center is to respond, investigate, and to resolve any allegations specifically related to sexual abuse and sexual misconduct. So those are the cases that the center takes. And they look into their jurisdiction includes sports or activities within the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic movement. The second goal and mission, so to speak, of the center, they are directed to raise awareness, educate athletes, coaches, trainers, and anyone else involved in Olympic movement on how to prevent abuse and also that this abuse has to be reported. The center is made up of a board of directors. It includes experts on abuse, investigators, and experts on ethics and ethical compliance. They meet four times a year where they update their policies, their practices, and their procedures. So that's just a little summary on the center. Similar, and parents should understand that your child's sport is also overseen at the competitive level by a national governing body. I mentioned in the case with Roxy, it's USA Cycling, but we know that a similar governing body is USA Gymnastics. You also have USA Skating or Wrestling or Lacrosse. And they also set policies, codes, and procedures that coaches are supposed to abide by. Coaches and the athletes are members. It's a privilege. It's not a right. These national governing bodies, not only do they hold the membership where they educate, where they inform, they oversee, they plan events, they deal with the judging, assigning judges, and they really work as a organization and an entity that oversees the individual sport. So in the case of Roxy, when the abuse happened, she filed an online, she filed a report with the center. So parents, you've learned of abuse. And if the abuse is sexual in nature, you know that it's going to be 
investigated by the center. As a small caveat and footnote, I in no way am implying that your only route or what you should do is to definitively always and only go to the center or a national governing body. To the contrary, if we're discussing abuse in any form, you also must consider reporting that abuse to local law enforcement, be it the police or a prosecutor. That is something that you have to seriously consider. There has been numerous instances where parents or athletes report to the center or a governing body and they do not feel that their complaint was heard it was or it was mishandled, it was non-responsive, and there was serious further damage done to the athlete, done to their case by not involving law enforcement, by parents believing that I've done my duty, I've reported it, and these officials in the center or a governing body, they'll take care of it. They'll do the reporting for me to local law enforcement. No, you yourself, this is your case, your child's case, or if you're the athlete, your case, you are steering the ship. At this point, you have to ensure that your complaint is heard by the correct parties. Do not just rely on these independent organizations. They're not law enforcement. They do not have the power of a court. They don't have the power of a judge. They don't have a power of a jury. So you have to make sure. So that's just a side note. So let's just talk then about the framework of what would happen if you reported abuse to the center or to your governing body and what's going to happen next. Well, because of shortfalls in funding, and I'm going to say this early because I know that so many individuals that have gone through the process from our example, Roxy included, there was a lot of disappointment and a lot of regret about the way the process progressed. What I do know from my research is that the center, some of the governing, national governing bodies are woefully underfunded. And we know when there's no funds, then resources, proper investigations, they fall short. In an article from 20, or numbers in an article from 2019, it was brought out that in 2019, there was a 55% increase in the reports made to the center that worked out to be about 239 reports a month. There were over almost 1,300 open cases. And of those cases, at that time, there were only 18 investigators and lawyers. And the center stated that they definitely needed to double their staff and triple that staff by 2023 to keep up with the amount of complaints and the need to investigate. There was even the comparison made that the U.S. Anti-Doping Committee, that they as a nonprofit, they had an organization that dealt with misconduct in sports, that they received millions of dollars in federal grants. And in contrast, the center who investigates abuse, they did not receive similar funding. So we know that there's uh, underfunding by those organizations. So that's something to keep in mind when you're thinking about your expectations and what will happen throughout the process. Step one, you're filing the complaint. After the complaint is filed, you can expect or should expect to hear back from an investigator from the center or from a national governing body. That investigator will 
take your complaint over the phone, make notes, and should follow up with some type of written communication providing you with a summary of what was said. You'll want to look over that summary. You'll want to think about that summary strategically at that point. You're always, it goes without saying on this episode, if you meet me on the street, if you're in my office, it goes without saying you are always and only telling the truth. But there's ways that when you speak to an investigator, and I'll tell you, I'll explain why, that you have to think about what you're going to share at that point. You're going to think about how you're going to frame, how you're going to write out these allegations that you're submitting. And this is why what you're saying is going to be turned over to the alleged abuser. It's going to be turned over to the coach, to the coach is going to be shared with them. So you don't want an instance where you're, because of the trauma, you're just speaking. Maybe you're telling a long story, your long account, and maybe that account you're speaking with having the privilege of looking at notes or looking at your, you know, maybe your calendar or dates. That can be very confusing when you're just having to tell this and say the abuse happened over two, four, six years. That's a lot to try to get out. That's a lot to try to stay, you know, on task with. So you have to think about that because this information will be shared. And this is not the time to overshare. It's the time to provide the investigator with what they need to investigate sexual misconduct. There's certain elements, there's certain factual checkpoints or checklists that you need to show. So it's really not the time to overshare. You are truthful, but you're remembering that what you're saying is going to be shown. After the complaint, after you file your complaint and after you give the account of what happened, you're going to have to remember that what comes next is that you're going to be questioned. And when I say the investigator, there'll be questions. And maybe this is not only one conversation. And the questions may not, in my experience, they may not always be fair and they may not always go to the heart of the allegations, the heart of what's being charged. So for example, if you're claiming a sexual assault, a violation, and you're speaking about, you know, other extraneous items that may have happened over the relationship, that doesn't necessarily have to come out during that first conversation that you're speaking to. After your conversation with the investigator, they will then question other individuals, either that you mention, or it could be individuals in the gym, other coaches, teammates, or trainers. And their questions to them may not go to the heart or the core of the allegation, the charge, so to speak, the violation. They could go to more to your character and it could feel like an attack. So just be aware of that there is a broader investigation that's going to include the statements of others and will go to also questioning your character, questioning other collateral issues that may not specifically deal with the abuse. So after the complaint, after the questioning of you, the questioning of other witnesses and the confirmation correspondence that you can receive, be it in the mail or by email, you're going to want to read that. And if you don't get that, ask specifically 
Can I have a copy of the complaint that's going to be drafted, that's going to be filed and shown to the coach? Can I see that? I want to check it for accuracy. Proactively ask for that. Roxy, in who I spoke about earlier, she said in her article, Reflections on the Safe Sport Process, I quote, I don't believe that national governing bodies are doing enough to make this information known to the athlete. She talks about after the investigation process, she had to wait. And then once a decision was made, Safe Sport sent her a letter that contained a lot of what was said about her. And that made it very tough for her to read. In the end, at this level in her process, and we'll talk about this, they concluded that sexual misconduct did occur. And she says it was very painful to read through the other witness testimony. You're going to be privy to, it may be redacted or names will be removed, but you're going to see what other teammates, coaches may have said about you. And that's something that you have to be prepared for in this process. The center's process, it includes the complaint, the investigation, the speaking to and the of witnesses, the gathering of evidence by way of these witness statements. Hearsay is allowed. So for example, what does that look like? A teammate could say, well, Martha told me. So it's not directly something that teammate saw or observed for themselves. They could say that they were told something else that is allowed in this. So you'll have kind of, he said, stacked upon what someone else said that could be contained in a witness statement. Be prepared for those types of allegations, which may feel very raw and may feel like attacks against you on top of what you've gone through. So you have the statements, you have that those gathering of evidence, and then the center will issue a written letter with their findings, whether they find misconduct has occurred or whether they have not. Here's a distinction and a difference. Some of the national governing bodies, in addition to taking your complaint, speaking with you, speaking with other witnesses, they will then go or may go one step further, depends on their rules, depends on their procedures. They may go one step further and conduct kind of a quasi judicial hearing. So we're not really thinking it's not a traditional court hearing with all of the rules, but it is a hearing that could be held remotely, virtually, where you're allowed to give a statement. You're allowed to have an attorney. The coach may have an attorney. You're allowed to cross-examine the coach. And there's a panel, usually a panel of three volunteer panel members that preside over the hearing, that make decisions, listen to all the evidence, and then act also kind of as if a jury, they deliberate and they give you the findings and then they impose whether if there's a finding of wrongdoing, they'll impose sanctions on the coach. So that's where it could differ with, between a the center and a national governing body. Then where we have a convergence and where the center and governing bodies come back together, so to speak, in the process, and it looks similar, is when you go to the step where If there's a finding against the coach and the coach is not in agreement, the coach then has a right pursuant to their membership and their contractual agreement with the governing bodies and with the center to appeal that hearing, appeal the finding 
whether it's the center's finding or the national governing's finding. And that appeal is usually made to an arbitration panel. Many of the sporting, the center or the sporting associations, they use the American Arbitration Association or the AAA. Did I say that right? Three A's? Which is an alternative dispute resolution center. It's a nonprofit. And what do you expect? So in this type of appeal arbitration process, there's only two parties. And guess what? You are not, quote unquote, a party to the arbitration process. You are a witness. The parties are the coach that's appealing and either the center or the national governing body. So take, for example, U.S. skating. They could be the party. You can be called in as a witness. And I would encourage you that if your case is appealed, that's when you've got to really do some thinking about, is this at the point that I consult with an attorney so I can really understand the process, so I can understand how to prepare myself, how to present, what it looks like, what it's going to feel like to appear as a witness. You don't want to just rely on the center or the national governing body. They have my back. They have my case. They're going to present my story the way it should be presented. Sometimes these appeals are done all in paper. And by that, I mean you as a witness, you don't even appear. They just present everything written, complaints, appeals, briefs, written requests, so to speak. They submit it to the arbitrator and it's reviewed without live testimony. If there's going to be appeal, you want to insist that you participate at that level to ensure a full and fair hearing of what's happened to you. So we know that going back to the process, there's going to be two parties, the coach and the organization. You are not a party. You're a witness. There's It's virtual. Hearsay is allowed. You have no right to appeal the process. You have no right to object to the questions or the rules, but you can be an advocate and you can work with a practitioner, a lawyer that knows the rules and that is willing to inject you in the process and make sure that you're heard. So the arbitrator, you know, you think about it's a mediator and these mediators, they, at a basic level, they receive about 32 hours of mediation training. Many of them, they're lawyers, so they have their lawyer or they have training. So that's who presides over the process. During the course of the arbitration process, if you're called as a witness, you have to be prepared for attacks on your character. You have to be prepared for the issue to be confused. Let me give you an example. In Roxy's case, when she appeared as a witness in her arbitration, in the arbitration hearing involving her coach, she said, the coach's attorney tried everything possible to discredit me rather than focusing on the event itself. Overall, the ordeal, the arbitration was more than 12 hours. She said she wasn't the sharpest at that point. She was tired. Even the arbitrator himself stated that it was too much for one day and that they should consider more time in the future. Roxy said she didn't even know what to expect going in. It appeared from reading her article that she thought she would be totally, her interests would be totally protected by the safe sport attorney 
And she had no idea about the length. She had no idea about the type of questions. She wasn't prepped. You know, there's a real gift. There's a real benefit in having an idea of what to expect. I remember, small story, small deviation. I remember at the birth of my son, I was terrified. The one thing that stuck out in me is that when I arrived at Lenox Hill Hospital, the nurse, and to this day, I remember her name, Carmen, she came in and she was so kind and she told me where I was going to go, what it was going to happen, how long she thought it was going to happen. It was just knowing the next steps. It removed that cloud and fear and it allowed me to relax. It allowed me to be present. When you're going into a situation after you've been traumatized, after you've been physically or sexually abused, you are on high alert. And if you're going from that trauma to talking about it, to trying to convince someone that this has happened, and then compile that with a trained attorney whose job it is, is to reframe the issue, to confuse what's happening and to stay away from the core facts, compile that on top of being exhausted from questioning. And you don't really stand a good chance not knowing. It's the not knowing that can hurt your case. In Roxy's situation, the arbitrator overturned the sanction and this coach was returned back to being able to coach and train other young women. It's being prepared It's understanding what's happening next. It's knowing the process and it's having the validation. It's having the benefit of information that will make the difference. In your case, it'll make the difference because you'll know your options and you'll know what to do. Thank you for joining me. As always, please visit the website. I've put some flashcards on there that kind of explains the process and options. You can take it, cut them out, take them with you so you can have information. My goal is to make it easy for you to understand the law. Thanks for spending some time with me today. Until next time, take care. All information and content in this podcast is provided for entertainment purposes only. Nothing in this podcast shall constitute legal advice and shall not create an attorney-client relationship. This information is general and may not be applicable to your particular circumstances. You should review your particular circumstances with an attorney. All liability with respect to actions taken or not taken based on the contents of this podcast is hereby expressly disclaimed.